Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. This episode, we will be talking about the sustainability of bioinformatics software. Software currently lacks long-term support and maturity. We will discuss what is causing this currently and what we think needs to change for us to move the field forward. Do we continue with the new hope of academic style work or, we do, or do we go to a more rigorous model? Uh, Nimbiel, you wanna kick it off? Yeah, let's kick it off with just describing how academic software development currently works. And at the moment, it's usually backed by short-term funding. It's a project for a postdoc or a PhD student who, when they leave the project, the software then dies. The average lifespan of bioinformatics software, therefore, is about three to five years, which is the lifespan of the grant or the contract of the person working on it. And uh, when so, and there are a number of different ways that that software in this working in this way will will die. So there are things like. Uh, when an academic, like the group leader, moves to a new institution or gets a new grant, the software will will cease to be maintained. There's very little funding to for longer term maintenance. It's just not sexy. Funders want to talk about novelty and they want to talk about exciting new technologies, and they often don't want to maintain uh, software. It's but then, uh, and there are often not areas where people work on a project and they publish the paper describing their new tool and they think that that's the end of it. And in reality, when you put a piece of software up there, it has to, and people use it, you have to look after those users and you have to add in new things as they require or fix bugs and so on. And Andrew... Yeah, so I'm one of those academics who moved institution and left behind a a long trail of software that needs to be maintained. And unfortunately, for the people who, who I left behind, they ended up having to field all of the bug requests or the bug reports and the feature requests and things like that. And I know that I'm not paid to work at the weekends and in the evenings on software I did for a different a different employer a few years ago, you know. For me, there has to be cut off. And, uh, you know, if I've published something five years ago, then should I really be maintaining it now for free? Yeah, and that's definitely something that's happened with me in larger infrastructure projects. So, for instance, um, when I was working with, on Entrobase, and the, this is an example that speaks wider for the utility of MLST. So, 
multi-local sequencing is a standard method used by a lot of reference labs now instead of a lot of uh, other, say, serological typing or genotyping methods. And these databases that drive these schemes need to be kept consistent and need to be maintained. People need to review the sequence types and the alleles going into these databases. But there is very little central funding for that. It's essentially a service given for free. The projects, the databases that look after it, jump from grant to grant. And often the people driving it just are trying to always come up with the research angle to to make it novel and fresh while also trying to carve out some space to do the background day-to-day maintenance uh, and i think lee also has an mlst example as well yeah actually i almost forgot this that um in my phd uh, about a hundred years ago I made a seven genome LST website and um, I did it hand in hand with, um, with my co-PI at CDC and, and with, um, with my lab at Georgia Tech. And it was, it was a web server that analyzed uh, meningococcal seven gene MLST. And after about um, five or 10 years, actually the web server went offline. I had moved to the meningitis lab and onto then foodborne. So I was two steps away from my academic career and no one was left to maintain it or to even uh, even know how to ask how to put it back online. And it, and it was superseded by the next graduate student and, I, and, and by the meningitis lab. And I believe now it, it is uh, better sustained, much better sustained in, in uh, the newest project, but um, I was definitely one of those academics that just that just moved on and I was not being paid either to maintain that thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's and there's a lot of maintenance or man hours that have to be put in behind the scenes to keep these things going. These are very simple but important things like say security updates or uh, updating it with new internal libraries or updating it with new changes in the programming language you don't necessarily have to be adding new features to have a lot of work just to keep something running and answer. And that's on top of answering uh, user queries and bug fixes. There is always a moving target of having a polished software project. And that takes a lot of effort, ongoing effort to, to look after. But in some cases, we've been successful, and some software does seem to persist and work. So I'm interested to hear from both of you, what are the examples where software did manage to succeed and has managed to have some staying power? Well, for me, the, the shining example is Sam Tools, but that's only come about because like, there's an entire team of people behind it and it's all open source and they're very much engaged with the community and with multiple institutions to try and keep it going. But in that case, it's long-term sustainable funding, which has kept that alive. And you have then other projects like Canoe, which came out of Celera. And again, that's someone has taken a decision, a long-term decision to keep that alive and keep improving it and keep making it better and better and better all the time but not everyone has luxury of that. And a lot of people, academics often have a lot of 
um, pulls on their time, maybe through teaching loads or the requirement to publish every few years and you know get that nature paper every two, three years. And uh, not everyone can take the time to, to continue supporting all their old stuff. And it is a lot of work, you know, from simple things. You, you might have done the best documentation in the world, but you'll always get people who come along who haven't read documentation and need a little bit of extra help and support. Unfortunately, the answer sometimes I have to give them, particularly if they're in a commercial organization, is that they have to pay for support if they want it. And, you know, when they start hearing proper commercial rates, they, they run away, you know. I know that we're talking about a lot of academic stuff, but I was just thinking about it um, while you're talking about it. Uh, Blast is a great example of of uh, well well maintained software over time. Um, it's government funded, so it's not exactly academic, but um, it's it's another example like Sam Tools where the whole bioinformatics community has to use it at one point or another, and it is well maintained, it's well documented. So um, that is a really really good shining example. Galaxy as well as a fantastic um, example as well of bioinformatics software that's just stuck around for many years. And that's, I suppose, because they've got a huge critical mass of um, people who are working on it. Rather than, you know, 50 people reinventing the wheel, making a workflow manager, they've gotten together, they've made one really, really good workflow manager and website, and they've kept at it, you know. Uh, year on year, they've uh, they've worked on it. There's multiple grants from different uh, institutions around the world. So, it's funded in the US, it's funded in uh, the EU, in Germany, and in a variety of different places. You know, it, it's got a lot of critical mass support, which I think you you need for larger projects. But then not every project is big enough, or every field is big enough to support software in that way, you know, because a lot of what we do is very, very niche. Before uh, coronavirus came out, you know, there, there's probably only a handful of people in the world working on the genomics of coronavirus, probably not even. And it's only now that we, we realize, oh, this is an area we need to put a lot of stuff into. But prior to that, there's virtually nothing. One just popped into my head was uh, FastQC as another one. This is a quick example. Mm-hmm. I think that's been around for quite a while. That's funded by Babraham, isn't it? Exactly. BBSRC. Yep, so keep it up. Keep funding vital software. Sorry, yeah, uh, we only bring that up because uh, BBSC is the funder that um, Nabil and I work for. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. Hint, hint. Please fund more of our software. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, BBSC are one of the few funders who have a separate call every year, or yeah, a separate call every year on uh, for tools and resources, and it's basically not for the new shiny thing, but it's for keeping certain software applications going and certain databases going that have become critical to the industry. But often, as from what I've heard, it's, it's vastly oversubscribed because anyone who gets a grant for anything and then needs continuing funding, you know, tries to throw a, an application into this. But of course, you know, there's only a small pot of money. If we could have more like that, that'd be great. Yeah, I think the funds in those pots are quite limited. Um, it's and a lot of them a lot of them have very um, strange earmarking they tend to be for capital equipment or things like that and not necessarily staff and it's actually the staff it's it's work hours that you really need to keep something going yeah programmers are pricey exactly um but of course and people get around this you know they they go and rebrand their software 
they add in a new buzzword, they uh, make it work in a slightly different domain. Instead of bacteria, it'll be yeast. Instead of yeast, it'll be viruses, you know? People, people uh, find ways to, to get around things. Or they stick a version two on the end and say it's a totally brand new thing. Or they put it in the cloud because cloud things are obviously so much fluffier. One trick is to migrate your software from a desktop application to a web application. To a phone, you know, if you have it on an app, it, you know, it's obviously great. But hopefully everyone out there is getting the impression that the only way software really does continue is you have a very savvy group leader who can come up with a good story to keep it going or a large institution takes it over as a core project for themselves. Otherwise, there's very little hope for any tool that we write to persist longer than uh, the three to five year mark of what most people's contracts tend to tend to last for. So saying that a lot of the software that is produced by academics, it's a very low quality and we probably don't want it to continue anyway. We probably want to kill it off pretty quick. Yeah, there is a thing that, um, it, and don't get me wrong. I mean, it's really important that people experiment with new software, new methods and prototype different ideas, but we need to draw a line and most software is actually more or less a prototype and should remain as such. Uh, I think when I reviewed for different journals, uh, I found that the software submitted suffers from the sort of Dunning-Kruger effect where the people know enough to produce a software package, but not enough to actually assess that this package really is a bespoke thing for their specific project and not fit for mass consumption. That's a polite way of saying it'll only ever run on their laptop. Well, a lot of it is glorified bash scripts and a lot of it is really hard-coded, you know, folder parts and things like that, which just really isn't acceptable. And also people think if they have spent six months or a year building this piece of software, that it is worth publishing regardless, you know, whereas maybe if they got a professional software engineer or someone like that who actually knew what they're doing, it might've taken two weeks and the problem they're solving isn't actually that big or publishable. And that, that's a, a hard trait for some people. Yeah, it, it is important to recognize that they've produced a thing and they've produced some sort of output. And really the best way for us in our community is publication. But yeah, so it's difficult. I think part of it struggles because we don't have a good avenue for software, for the sort of basic software, even just to get a, just to get acknowledged somewhere so that a student can feel like, yeah, I wrote a thing and here it is. And then they can carry on. It's a lot of it is um, like kind of the incentive model. Then it's uh, in this case with academics, it's you want to get credit for the thing you've been working on for six years or or how much scientific thought you put into this and you want to publish it, but the actual product after the paper, you might get the paper out, but then the actual the actual software might not be very sustainable. Yeah. If we, we've said this before, if, if you write a bioinformatics tool and nobody cites it, did you really write a tool? Yeah, that's a good and, question. Yeah. And, and definitely this is exacerbated by people who reinvent the wheel over and over and over again. Uh, and I, this harks back to our first episode, like how many assemblers and aligners do we really, really need at this point? 
but there is a value for a student to take a genome assembler part and understand how it works to tweak it, but I'm not quite sure that should be presented as a polished software tool people can use. But then, uh, so, I mean, while we've been discussing these different issues, we've come, we've touched on the issue that getting credit for your work seems to be a problem. How have both of you managed to facilitate credit or get, how would you get credit for work that you've done on a software project? I would say that it, it is kind of like an incentive issue and credit is a major incentive for this kind of stuff. I see where a lot of people come from where they want to kind of take credit and, and exclude others for, you know, just minor credit, which I can kind of understand that there's a certain threshold for giving someone like authorship, but I think it doesn't cost anything to give authorship to people who have contributed something to the project. So, um, I think one model for incentive for giving credit is, you know, anybody who's made a commit to you, at least acknowledge them. If they've done something significant, give them authorship. Don't be stingy. It costs you nothing really to, to give credit to somebody. So I think that's a good, really good way to get community support. And if you get community support, then you might get more sustainability. Yeah, that's a very difficult issue, especially in say, a large manuscript where there's a scientific component to it as well, experimental component to it. And people behind that project and then the software are a specific set of people. And then there's a different set of people who maybe help out with the software, but aren't necessarily involved in the science. And so there's a feeling that the latter shouldn't be on as an author on the paper because they don't, they haven't contributed to the scientific component, which is fine. But then those people do need to get acknowledged. So in the past, I quite like the idea of having a community group or development group and having that as an author in the author lifts and then having a list of all the contributors to that as a footnote in the manuscript, just so that you recognize the, the different levels of contribution, but people still do get acknowledged. Because if you don't acknowledge people and you don't thank people for helping you out, we can never really have the open source community-driven software that, we t that people seem to assume will exist. So we've now outlined the major issues with sustainability of academic software in the field. These problems kind of flow around experimental projects, which lead to experimental software. <laughs> and then there's no long-term maintenance plan. Uh, there's no incentive to maintain uh, past, for example, the, the graduation date. Programs are not modular, they're unstructured, and all these issues make it difficult for the community to take over like a modular design, which is what is implied by the way we approach development and the development of funding. It's an important issue and Hopefully next time we can talk about strategies to improve. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute. <laughs>